It's March 26, 2006, and this is The Candid Frame. Anybody can take a picture, but not everybody can make a great photograph. It used to be that if you wanted to complete control over your image making, not only would you invest in cameras and an assortment of lenses, but you'd also invest in a darkroom with its enlarger, enlarging lenses, developing trays, and, and chemicals. Now in the digital age, we have digital cameras and, and memory cards instead of film. We import our images into computers and we enhance and manipulate the image in Photoshop. And then we output the files onto inkjet printers where we can produce prints that will last decades and sometimes even centuries. The age of digital has certainly made things more accessible, if not easier. We have now more control than we ever had in a, in a traditional darkroom, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're making better photographs. The tools, the, the cameras, the software, the printers, they're making... They're providing greater control now than we had before, but it's still the imagination of the photographer that produces a great photograph. You look at the work of Man Ray, W. Eugene Smith, Ansel Adams, and each of these photographers weren't simply satisfied with the image created inside of the camera. That was just a starting point. They each in their own way used the dark room and the tools that they had at their control to create a print that was based not on the limits of the technology that they were using, but their own imagination. Today's guest is a photographer that sort of exemplifies that. And Vincent Versace is a man whose photography is not limited by the digital camera that he's using, by the software that he's using, or the printer that he's using. The limits are the limits of his own imagination, and he uses all the tools at his disposal to see that through to that final beautiful print. And when you see his prints or, or you see his images online, you'll see that he's a great example of what's possible when you use all the tools at your control to make a great photograph. So in a moment, our conversation with Vincent Versace. Hello, I'm here with Vincent Versace. And Vincent, welcome to The Candid Frame. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to be in The Candid Frame. First off, I want to hear about how you first came into photography. And doing my research on you, I saw that you went you know, to the USC Film School and, and, and such. But when did the camera bug first bite you? Um, I think I was about seven years old, and I, I have two uncles that are photographers. One's a wedding photographer. And I went into the dark room, and I put a sheet of paper in the easel, and we put a negative in the enlarger, and you know, did the little hand dance that you do to dodge and burn, and I watched this thing materialize in the developer, and then I got a whiff of fixer. It was a done deal. Just I just was hooked. That was it. End of discussion. And yeah, I sold my first photograph when I was nine. What was that photograph of? It was a, a, a picture of a beer-drinking raccoon. 
and um, I sold it to a local newspaper. Then it was what the kicker was: the raccoon had this bottle of beer and it was looking at me like, "What? <laughs> like, good old, it's a party, man!" And it was just a hoot. I first saw your images about, I guess, it's about eight or nine years ago, and I was really struck by how you used available light uh, predominantly for your portraiture, whether it was portraiture, whether it was um, landscape. And from what I was reading there, that you not you just, just don't just depend on finding light. You're really proactive in terms of being very conscious of it, shaping it, manipulating it for the purpose of your images. Where did you develop that? Was that largely from film school or, or elsewhere? Um, it was just from watching light. I mean, film school really for me was kind of an afterthought of my career. I studied to be an actor and I went to school because no one taught me how to get a job as an actor. So I figured I'll go to film school. Um, but it all comes from my uncles, both of them being photographers. And the thing that I learned early on from them, and it's a mistake most people make, I've, I've come to find, which is, Y'all think you're photographing the subject. The subject has little to do with what you're photographing. In actuality, what you're photographing is the light that is being interrupted by the subject. And it is the light that is the most important. And I spend a lot of time just paying attention to light. I, I'm reminded of a quote from Irving Penn that has always kind of stuck with me. And Joe McNally told me this, which is uh, he asked um, Irving Penn once, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, W. Eugene Smith, I'm a liar. W. Eugene Smith. Um, what type of light did W. Eugene Smith use? And he's smoking a cigar and like, uh, I use available light. By available light, I mean any damn light that's available. <laughs> and that's exactly it. I mean, I have lights, 100-watt bulbs, reflectors, uh, asphalt. Whatever works is what I go after, but it, you should pay attention to light. Just watch it. I'm giving you a cheap excuse to daydream and stare at the wall. Watch the light travel across the wall when you're at work in your office. And if your boss says, what are you doing? He says, well, Versace says I should just stare at the wall and watch the light. Just blame me for it. Yeah, that's something that I do a lot of. Because even when I'm driving, you know, I'm constantly looking at the way the light is reflecting off a building or, or how it's passing through the clouds. Cause, and even if I'm not taking a picture, I'm appreciating the beauty that, that's there. Well, it's, it's the light. I mean, it is, it, I would rather see, you know, laundry beautifully lit than a beautiful building poorly lit. You know, it's just, once you see that pattern and the way light plays, I, what I do when I shoot is I treat light like it's a solid object. Like it's as tangible a thing that I can touch. And in a photograph, in a sense, you can. I mean, you're touching the light, you can see its effect on things. So when I consider it, I consider it as if it's solid. One of the things that you, you I've read is that you are very big on preconceiving the image mm -hmm. to the extent that you're thinking about the print at, at the end of the, you know, at the end of the line. And I'm hoping that you can speak to that in terms of, especially now that you, you pretty much are immersed in the whole digital workflow in terms of when you're taking a picture, what are you considering when you are 
pre-visualizing how that final print is going to look like. Well, I guess I want to be clear on the digital film thing. I, I honestly believe that film these days is what is what occurs on your teeth when you don't brush. Um, the digital world is a place where impossible is just simply an opinion. And anything I can imagine, I can create. With that said, what I have in my mind's eye is I see... When I'm looking through the camera, and you, you know, when you see a photograph and it, it just it grabs you, I can see that picture on a wall. I actually have, um, it's a Norman Rockwell Saturday Evening Post magazine cover, which is called The Connoisseur. And it's this picture of this guy that's bald, holding a bowler hat in a suit, and he's looking up at a Jackson Pollock painting. And what I do is I take out that painting, and whatever I'm looking through my viewfinder, I put that image in that frame as I believe it will be. I see it with the belief that it, it will be the most beautiful thing. And then when I go into the computer to work on it, what I'm doing is I'm always trying to go back to that vision so that I'm just removing everything that is not my vision of the image. And by simply doing that, I have found that it makes getting to that image so much easier because I always know what the picture will look like. Or maybe not look, but I always know what the picture will feel like when I look at it would be a better way to describe it. That when I'm done, there's that sense of like, ah, when you put a put sunglasses on on a really bright day and your eyes have that sort of like, oh, thank you very much. It's that same sort of sensation. And I guess it's more of a feeling than uh, a seeing, but the feeling occurs when I look at the image. You, you do a lot of teaching. Do you find that a lot of the people that you're teaching, you know, the use of Photoshop and, and, and such and, and lighting are so intimidated by the technology that they're not, they're not looking that far ahead or? I think they get themselves intimidated by the technology, but there, there, are, there are things you need to keep in mind when you're looking at digital. First, you are top of the food chain. If that computer is acting up or that com camera is acting up, real simple. You turn it off. Unplug it out of the wall. You win. End of discussion. Um, computers are stupid. Ones and zeros. And it will only do what it is that I tell it to do or it will only do what it is that it is programmed to do. Where the creative mind comes in is how to work around um, capturing images and manipulate them in a way in which gets to your vision. The th other thing I think that people do is they see the forest. When they look at an image and they see the final file out of the camera, they think that that's the final file. All that is is an intermediary step. See, the, the, the boon of digital photography is you have 100% control. Uh, the bane of digital photography is you have 100% control. So what happens is that steps that you did not see in the silver days, the color correction of an image that happened in the enlarger or in the printing process or however you had your images uh, replicated, um, you now have to do. So there are all sorts of things you didn't know what was going on behind the you know closed doors that you're now in charge of. So rather than be overwhelmed by it, see the vision in your head and then be able to ask the intelligent questions. I think another problem, or at least a problem I see, is that all the things that you can buy for books and DVDs and stuff on, on how to learn are all answers. But if you don't know the questions, the answers do you no good. So when you're looking at an image, rather than say, oh, I suck, I can't do this, 
No, what sucks is generally the technology or the limitations of it, no matter whose camera or software or computer you're using. You don't suck. What sucks is that you're overwhelmed because of limitations of the technology and you blame yourself for things that you have no control over that occur. And your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to remove everything that is not your vision of the image and stay true to that one thought, that you liked it when you looked at it through the viewfinder. Otherwise, you wouldn't have taken the picture. What changed? I mean, did something happen in the camera where all of a sudden this pearl became some level of fertilizer that you can't stand the way it looks? Well, that file that comes off the camera, that raw file, that's an intermediary file. That's not the finished thing. I mean, would it be great that if it came off the camera perfect? Yeah, it'd also be great if we had automatic subject finder cameras too, but that ain't going to happen either, nor would I want it to. What I want is to be informed about my decisions. So we get back to what's important. The more you know about the middle, the more informed your decisions can be at the beginning because what are you in service of? The end, the print. But the question that never gets asked is, well, what's the print in service of? That's simple. The print's in service of your voice. So if you know what it is that you want to say, or at least open yourself up to allowing something to move you when you take a picture, everything else is a detail. And that's what I, I, I truly believe. I believe everybody has a voice that needs to be heard, and I'm, that's why I teach. It's like, okay, I, live, I lead a blessed life. I get to do the coolest stuff. So let me show you how to do some. If I can contribute to 10% of that in your life, 20%, sign me up. So that's kind of where, excuse me for that. <laughs> okay. Um, I think when people take a look at your images, particularly when they listen to this podcast, they'll look at your pictures and they'll go, wow, he takes great pictures, but, you know, he works with Epson, he works with Nikon, he works with Wacom. If I had access to all that, stuff, I'd probably take just as good a pictures as he does. And you have an interesting story when you were working with some students that uh, I'd like to hear. Oh, you yeah, actually, it's the photograph that's over here. It's that picture right there. Um, I, I was teaching this one class and I got this, oh, the reason why your pictures are so good, because hey, you got this camera, that camera. And I had I had brought um, a couple of point and shoot cameras. And so I said, all right, here you go, kids. You can, you can have the D1X and the D2H and all that sort of stuff that I brought. And the I'll take this Coolpix 5000 and I'll just shoot with that. And um, three of my favorite photographs of all time I have shot with that camera. It's not the camera. It is the sensibility behind the camera. And it is sensibility that actually is what people mistake for the eye. I mean, you can arrange stuff and make it look cool and geometrically interesting, but it is a sensibility that inhabits the image. And it's mostly a case of, of slowing down. It's like, does it help to have a good camera? It helps, believe me. And what type of camera should you buy? I recommend you should buy your last camera first. Don't buy cameras the way in which you build freeways, which is for perceived need. Buy for expansion. But if that ain't the case, any camera will do. It's, uh, it is a capture device. And you should treat it as a capture device. Uh, it's like I had a... I wound up with the Presidio project. Um, one of the things I would hear a lot is the reason why your pictures look so pretty is because you go to exotic places and shoot beautiful models and actors. So I gave myself a self-assignment, which I recommend everybody do. And the self-assignment I gave myself was I will not cross the street. That, so for three years, all I did was take pictures 
of the block around my studio. It did not cross the street. So I shot all these pictures. I have 35 images that are on my website that are, are from this, of all of which sell as art. And the CEO of the Presidio Trust saw this collection of pictures. And we got to talking about what this self-assignment was. And he asked me, well, would you like to have a bigger block? And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, what about the San Francisco Presidio? It's 1,480 acres, but you can't leave the, the gated fence. Okay. So it just expanded out into I didn't leave the park. And I would invite you to consider self-assignments, you know, things I, I, I give myself. Find the alphabet in nature, the geometric structures of the alphabet. Pick a color. Photograph nothing but manifestations of that color and then do that in an hour. Or pick image structures, rectangles, squares, X's, zeros, and shoot them and see how many different ways you can shoot them. Or, or pick an object and see how many different ways you can shoot it. And just practice, because uh, practice, there's a mistake that people make. And this has to do with the way we're, we were taught when we were young, which is the belief that practice makes perfect. It doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. You actually should be practicing at practicing. And the best way to do that is in the time in which is not mission critical, which is the time in which you are the most relaxed and the most receptive for things to come in. And the images that will become seminal, the images that will become iconic, at least for me anyways, mostly have come out of those times where it's just like, do 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 let me take a picture. I want to talk to you about uh, your portraiture work. And I think your your what strikes me about them is, is one, is just the beauty of, of the light. But you seem to be working in collaboration with your subjects. I think a lot of photographers um, end up just putting the subject in front of the camera and, you know, and, and photographing them and with no real concern about the model's participation in, in the creation of the image. But it seems like in your work, you're often actively collaborating with them. And I'm wondering how that, how you work that, but particularly when you're also very conscious of what you're trying to do with light and shape and color. Well, glad you asked that question. That's actually an important... You've been looking at my work. Most people don't get that. Um, I believe that it is a connection between the subject and the photographer, and the goal of any photograph is to make it so that the viewer is having the same emotive experience I was when I was looking at it. And I I remember an Ansel Adams quote. It's one of the few things I, I really strongly disagree with that he has said, which was he was asked, how many people are, I don't see any people in your pictures. He says, well, there's two. There's the viewer and the photographer. And I just went, no, that means your ego is in that picture. Now, I have never been accused of having a small ego. And I will admit that sometimes um, I require lubrication to squeeze through a door because my head can get so big. But when it comes to my photographs, what I want to have is that the only thing that is in the photograph is the subject or the viewer, not me. 
so that when you're looking at my photograph, you have the same connection that I do so that the experience is the same. Now, how I do that is I do work with my subjects. It's an all-day experience when I do portraiture. And we work on connecting in a way in which that I photograph the occurrence of the space between. It's an, an acting term. That acting doesn't occur on the uh, one side of the camera or the other side of the camera. It occurs between the photographer and the subject or between the actors on stage. And that the camera is just placed in between it. So what occurs is I'm following the follower. They're doing things that are causing me to do things, and I'm doing things that are causing them to do things. So we start connecting. Now, in that, what I like to do is to create controlled randomness or basically controlled insanity. Um, Viola Spolin said that in absolute spontaneity, you get absolute truth. You can only be one way if you're spontaneous, and that's truthful, which I agree, that I want to capture the spontaneous moment. So what I'll do is I will light in a ball. That's why I use reflected sunlight, that I will create a lighting environment which allows the subject to move. Things that I have observed over the years is people will pose themselves far more interestingly than I will ever figure out how to pose them because they know their body far better than I know my their body. And I want to make sure that what I get is them, that I want the representation of them. One of the ways that I practice is um, I shoot my flowers like they're portraits and I shoot my people like they're landscapes and the juxtapositioning of applying the approaches to the opposite disciplines has inhabited my photographs, which is why I started shooting people because I'm trained actually as a landscape photographer, black and white, large format, peeling paint and trash can photographer. And so I started shooting people because when I got out of school, my uncle gave me a camera and says, I'm tired of listening to you complaining about having to wait tables. I taught you photography, go shoot actors. So that's what I did. And I wound up through the course of human events, coming up with this whole way of shooting, which was based on, well, how would I want my pictures taken? So, you know, I, I shoot at the speed of life. I don't count rolls of film and I don't just take the one shot. I will shoot hundreds of shots and pick the best examples of the experience because life as is art is process driven, not result driven. And if you go for the result, you will never be happy with the outcome. But if you engage in the process and pick the best examples of the process, what will occur is you will get these incredible results, which has nothing to do with going for a result. It's just showing up. The journey becomes the destination. One image that you that you did that didn't involve that that process of spending the entire day with the with the subject was your picture of Norman Lear. <laughs> so why don't you tell me about that? <laughs> oh man, Norman Lear, a hoot. He's an absolute hoot. I called him up. I was supposed to shoot him for the technological educate or technological educational development conference or economic development conference. TED. And I said, you know, Norman, I need a, I need a couple of hours to do this. He goes, ah, I'm not going to give you a couple hours. Ah, I'm a busy man. You get, you get 15 minutes. Bam, hangs up the phone. All right. So I drive down to his office. I walk in. He comes in. He says, I'm not giving you 15 minutes. You got 10 minutes. I'm going to take five to get ready. I hate having my picture taken. I'm a happy man. Photographers never photograph me being happy. I'm a happy man. 
okay. So he leaves. Um, so we go into this big discussion as to whether or not I can take a picture off the wall. Finally, we get the okay to take this picture off the wall. And he comes in wearing his signature cap, and he, he says, I'm a happy man. And he sits down, and I take one shot, and I go, we're done. And he goes, what do you mean we're done? I go, I mean we're done. He goes, we're done like in done-done? And I go, we're done like in done-done, done-done, done. No, 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 no. You mean done like in done-done, done-done, done, we're done-done, done? And I go, we're done. What do you mean we're done? I go, is there an echo in here? He goes, we're done? And he goes, you want to see it? He goes, I can see it? Yeah, you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. You sure I'm sure? It was like a sitcom. So I take this picture, I show it to him on the back of my camera. He goes, oh my God, that's the best photograph I've ever had. It's of a back, the back of his head. So I make it a black and white. We blow these things up to the size of billboards at TED. And I show up at this conference. And I mean, it costs 5,000 bucks a head to get into this conference. It's where all the movers and shakers of technology and economics show up. And I had all these people coming up to me going, oh, that's that's just my favorite picture of yours. I have loved that work for years. That has been my, I just love that picture. And I'm looking at this thing and I went, I just shot this last week, but you don't really, and you just, thank you very much. Absolutely, you know, yes, sir, absolutely. And it's all these big CEOs. Yes, oh, that's my favorite picture of his. And um, he still, I believe he still uses that headshot to this day. And he's a cool guy. He's a hoot. That's a great story. The reason I ask about it is like at the moment he did it, how much of it, how much of that was, I know I've got the shot and I definitely don't need any more, you know, in terms of just confidence in terms of what you're doing. Cause there's so many photographers, they go, I got to shoot a bunch of images just to make sure I have one, especially when you're doing it on assignment and how much of it was just sort of a risk, nervous in the belly, sort of. In all honesty, I was not, it wasn't a risk. I was actually kind of pissed off. So it was like one of those things is like, all right, fine, you know, fine. Okay. And so he sat down and he spun the chair around. He goes, you want me to take a picture like this? And I just looked down at the camera. And one of the ways that I shoot is if it looks cool, take a picture of it. It's just like that. It's just, and I go, wow, boom. And I looked at this thing and he's all about this signature hat of his. So it's not about his face, it's about his hat. And it just worked out that the table and the ascending lines and the chair and the curve, you have to keep in mind, I shot that in his boardroom. This is like the most boring room. I mean, not that his boardroom is boring, but as a backdrop for shooting something, I have a blank white wall, a mahogany desk, and an office chair. And we have one bare light bulb. That was, we took the um, head off of this Photoflex light that I have that um, you can put these things together, Starlight. We brought a Starlight in. We hadn't even put the head on the diffuser yet. He just came in, sat down, spun the chair around and says, what about this? And it was like, I took the picture and I took one look at it in the screen and it was just, well, okay. And it was just, you know, we're done. And it was hysterical, <laughs> just the conversation. And then we got into this conversation about what our favorite episode of All in the Family was. And it came down to this one silly scene between Meathead and Archie about um, how do you put your socks and shoes on? And he and I do exactly the same thing. I do a sock, a shoe, a sock, a shoe. 
instead of a sock, a sock, a shoe, a shoe. And I just remember when I was a kid, that one episode, and I literally, when we were done, I go, now, do you do a sock, a shoe, a sock, a shoe, or a sock, a sock, a shoe, a shoe? And he just looked at me, he's like, that's my favorite episode. I do it. What do you do? I go, well, what do you do? And he goes, well, you tell me first. I, go, well, I asked. He says, well, I, I, I made the, and I said, well, I do a sock, a shoe. And he goes, so do I. And he's like, okay. So, I mean, he's, he's the neatest guy, but it was just a hoot to go through that. And we get back to, in absolute spontaneity, you get absolute truth. He sat down, turned his head around. It was no thought. It was just engaging in perfect practice that I wasn't premeditating in the sense of, I must get this picture. It was, I shot the picture, looked at it. And at that moment, I actually saw what it was going to look like. And I knew it was going to be a black and white. Because if you actually see the original file, the color is all over the place. It is, it is just, just god-awful, unbalanced yellow. And when it was all said and done, it's a pretty cool shot. Your talent as a photographer goes without saying. Anybody who looks at your images just knows how good you are. But one of the things I'm really interested in hearing you talk about is your marketing of yourself and your work. Because there are a lot of photographers out there who are really talented, but really get nowhere in terms of their photography in terms of a, of a business and being able to do it for a living. And I'm wondering how you sort of navigated that to make the career that you have. Well, I got lucky. I mean, a big part of it was being in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, there is some, some aspect of that with digital. When I got involved with digital, it was um, basically a case at the Nikon booth in which there is the one guy in the corner collecting cobwebs because nobody would talk to him. Um, but there were some things that I looked at as I was as I was doing this. One of the mistakes, I think, gets made with artists has to do with something Oscar Wilde said, which is amateurs speak in terms of art and artists speak in terms of money. And frequently, artists speak in terms of art. Oh, I can't do this. I'm prostituting myself. I can't. It's like the minute you start doing that, you start losing sight of what it is that you're doing. Now, I see myself as a manufacturing facility. I do manufacture creativity. My job is to tell the truth and see the pretty. That's what I, I believe I do. And I approach my work as I'm not an artist. Though I get accused of it, I don't see myself as one. Art is something that People, and I use the word, accuse your work of being. And it's it's people you don't know looking at your work, hanging on a wall, and they say, oh my God, that's art. At that moment, you become an artist. But only for that moment. Or if you've got a company that says, oh, I'm, you're my featured artist. It's like, okay. But it's expression that you are doing, and it's your sensibility and expression that you're creating, and it's your sense of the aesthetic that people are buying and it is your vision of the world that hits somebody. And I love the fact that people, don't get me wrong, will buy my work, you know, that it pays the rent. But first and foremost, I do it for myself. Now, as a marketing facility, I look at stuff. Like, all my image sizes are standardized. The reason being is that it's easier to load the paper into machines, but it's also easier for the end user to buy frames. Now, I have watched people buy two of my images because when there's a penny sale on frames, they can 
get the frame for you know two for one frames which frequently frames can be as expensive as the art all right well if the medium in which holds the art is the inhibitor for people buying the art and you can fix that by going to standardized sizes 8 by 10 8 and a half by 11 13 by 19 so on and so forth up to 44 by 36 okay you're a business now look at the way people market soap who says that all of that marketing theory can't work for you as an artist you take stuff you're making stuff so you're manufacturing stuff you're taking the images that you've captured, putting them on paper. They become things in which you sell. All right, you're a business. Approach it that way. Pack it and market yourself that way. But don't think that it's a mortal sin to sell your creativity. Cre creativity is a continuing thing. And the more you create, the more you create. And if you get precious about the work and hold it in, the less will come out of you. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's how I did it. The other thing, too, I think that's important is always share your knowledge. What you put out there comes back to you. The more that I have been willing to share what it is that I have learned, the more um, I have uh, gotten back. And I really do believe in sharing the refulgence. I think that that's key. And uh, those would be the advice, that would be the advice that I would give. I guess the other thing, too, is the question's not so much how competent you are, questions how competitive you are well you're sharing that in, in a book you have coming out called welcome to oz a cinematic approach to digital still photography uh no no it's welcome oh, to oz it? following the rgb road oh okay we had a change it, it is a cinematic approach to digital still photography but the the catchy name is is, is far more important tell me what you are uh, hoping to get across to the people who read the book um it's a why to not a how-to, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, I believe that there are too many books of answers. There are not enough books of questions. So what I tried to do in this book was I tried to, from a photographer's perspective, discuss what it is to be th thinking about as you're shooting and explore what it is that you need to know about how to manipulate an image in the middle so that when you're done, you'll be in service of the print at the end so it's a book of questions of what to ask an example is like you'll buy a, a textbook and on page 237 of a photoshop book it will be to create the classic contrast adjustment curves layer select curves adjustment layer click the center point click up one point rotate to the left click ok select luminosity you have created the classic adjustment curves layer note if you'd like since it's an adjustment layer, it also has a layer mask. Well, just exactly what good does that piece of knowledge do you as you're sitting there reading this book of answers? Well, if you know how the human eye works, which is it goes to patterns that it recognizes first, light to dark, high to low contrast, high sharpness to low sharpness, in focus to blur, which is different than high to low sharpness, and high saturation of color to low saturation of color, and you want to move the eye, actually I think there are two eyes, the unconscious eye and the conscious eye. The unconscious eye is the eyeball, and the conscious eye is the eye in which does the playwriting. And you want to move the eyeball in a way in which the conscious eye will interpret as a story. One of the ways you can do that is by boosting contrast selectively. All of a sudden, page 237 now has meaning, because you can say, hmm, how do I create 
selective contrast. Well, create a classic contrast adjustment layer curve and play with the layer mask so that it's a book of here's what I was thinking at an epiphany photograph. And by epiphany is there are things in my technique where have formed it. And I've taken every image in the book was an epiphany image, which is where the idea came that now informs the technique from that moment forward. And I give you the actual image, which is full resolution file plus a 100 PPI file that was used to create the chapter so that you can um, compare the images so that you can see exactly what it is that I've done. And you can work on the real pixels, 16-bit uh, full resolution. I just do the conversion from raw file to TIFF for you. And it's here's how to map an image. Here's how to develop a, a dynamic workflow. Here's how to image harvest, how to get shape to or color to respond like shape so that you remember the color over the shape, how to convert black and white uh, to replicate the physics of film without leaving the RGB color space, how to light in the computer, and how to photograph time. And those are the things that I wanted to put in my book that has taken me five years to write. I have two editors and three publishers that are all over me about this book. It will come out. It will. I'm on my last chapter and a half of edit. It's like it's written, so it's coming out. It had better be coming out. I'm looking forward to seeing it. So am I. Um, <laughs> couple, uh, two more questions. One, we were talking earlier about monographs and about learning photography by not so much reading all these how-to books, but looking at the photographs of people who've done stupendous jobs before. And who is one photographer who you really um, dig, who... You think if people out there were to go out there and find the work of just one photographer to look at? Living or dead? Doesn't matter. Living or dead? There, there's two. One dead, one living. Um, the living one's Jay Maisel. Uh, Jay Maisel has forgotten more about light, gesture, and color than I will ever know. And really and truly, when it comes to that aspect of my work, um, he is probably the single greatest influence. And it's the conversations I've been privileged to have with him over the years that have really shaped my understanding of shape and color. And I would recommend that anybody who has the opportunity to seek out either listening to him speak about it or to look at his work because it, it's just, it, it's breathtaking. Dead, Josef Sudek. If you want to see a photographer that was just the photographer's photographer at Sudek. He was a one-eyed, one-armed, hunchback Hungarian that took pictures with a view camera. He would expose the film, and then he wouldn't develop it for three months so that he would have separation from the image, make a, develop the negative, and make no more than five prints, and then destroy the negative. And he was prolific and his understanding of light and pattern my god that's a photographer to take a look at um i would if i had to pick besides my uncle who taught me photography um if i had to pick the photographer in my early years that had the greatest single impact on what i do at sudek and in my adult years it would be uh, mazel 
And the last question is, I read on your bio that you are a part-time superhero. <laughs> so my, my final question to you is, cape or no cape? Uh, well, you know, if I told you, then you'd know which superhero I actually was, and my secret identity would be given up. <laughs> However, I do believe spandex is not made for people of my body type. So if, that's a, if that helps. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for, uh, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, I rather enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us again. The show went a little long, but hopefully you got a lot out of it. I'll have a link to Vincent's website at thecandidframe.com. And if you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please feel free to email me at candidframe at gmail.com if you haven't subscribed already there'll be a link on the website in the upper right hand corner where you'll be able to subscribe to iTunes or to any other uh, aggregator and uh, until next time this is Avarian X Perello and this is The Candid Frame